Yeah. Uh, I've just got a lot of programs crashing at the moment, so I'm just wondering whether if we actually launch into this, one of them is going to be us. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? How do you? What's the Control Alt Delete thing from Mac? Do you know what that is? I just restarted this thing as well. You don't use Macs, do you? No. Okay, and welcome back then to Fast Ship Performance, and I'm Tim Davies. I'm here with a good friend of mine, in fact, my only friend, probably, and if you don't want to count pets, uh, a guy called Chris Chambers. Um, Chris, just briefly then, why are you on my podcast? Uh, good morning, Tim. Hello. I'm here to talk about, uh, well, me, but also my experience from being in the armed forces, specifically the Royal Navy and the Fleet Air Arm, um, but also about transitioning from uh, a life in the military uh, to the outside world. Um, I went into business uh, and I now run a business. And uh, so I guess we're perhaps going to talk about that journey and all the aspects involved. Yeah, it's always a bit weird that beginning bit, isn't it? As I said to you, with a bit, I have to kind of introduce you, although I know, I've known you for ages. And it's like, but no one else, you know, on the podcast kind of does. So, um, right, so I'm going to cover really how we first met and we're going to bounce backwards and forwards and as you said we're going to talk about transitioning out of the military because obviously you both served the navy you joined a year ahead of me um because i think i'd failed my levels and had to do an hnd which took me four years university you were much cleverer so you did three years um and then i followed you into the navy you stayed and i left after about five years so we first met on a flying scholarship at kidlington when we had 30 hours was it back then flying piper cherokee warrior two things yeah, that's right. I think both you and I uh, sort of met when we were around about 16 years old. Uh, we both, I think, followed a fairly similar path, actually, having been in the Air Cadets with an ambition to fly and, and, and all that sort of stuff. And um, we applied for uh, flying scholarships with the RAF, um, which we were very lucky to receive. And uh, we went for flying training at Kidlington in Oxfordshire. So when was that? That was 1991. Yeah, I tried to work it out, yeah. Was yeah, it right? yeah. some time ago. And that was great. I mean, that was, I mean, apart from a little bit of flying in the air cadets, that was my first proper experience of, of learning to fly um, and being introduced to the, the world of aviation, really. Yeah, I, I kind of look back on that because I think if I hadn't done that flying scholarship, I probably wouldn't have actually joined the military in the end i think i probably would have done well i probably joined the military in some capacity because i think when you go through all those early cadets things that we all went through probably would i probably wouldn't have carried on trying to fly though and i remember uh well i was never accepted into the royal air force so i think i had a flying scholarship and then i'd gone back again for a cadetship which i was rejected for was that right it could have been actually and i never applied to the air force again until of course the air force took me in after my flying training at valley but you carried on applying for the Air Force. And what interests me about this is that you eventually were told, if I remember correctly, not to apply again. Yeah. I mean, I was really, as a kid. You I were mean, Air Force through and through, weren't you? Yeah. I mean, yeah. that had been my ambition yeah. right from a very, very early age. And I'd had a lot of support from, from my parents and I'd been in the cadets. And I'd really sort of started out laying out a path from a really early age to, to you know, trying to be a pilot in the, in the Air Force, a fast jet pilot. That's what I wanted to do. And of course, I'd had the early encouragement with it being a flying scholarship, and then I also had a sixth form scholarship as well. So I, I thought, that. yeah, hey, I'm, this is going all right. Yeah. Um, and then went to university, and um, I didn't actually step back a little bit. I didn't get into the Air Force off the back of my sixth form scholarship because options for change at the time, defence cuts meant they reduced the number of people that they were entering into Cranwell, uh, which meant I think. Uh, literally a handful, four or five people that had been selected for sixth form scholarships 
um, out of the 80 that were selected, only around about four or five actually entered uh, into Cranwell um, when we completed A-levels. And of course, I was chopped from, from that group of people, went to university, um, I applied for RAF University cadetships and bursaries, which I didn't get. And I, I think I did that twice whilst I was at university. Um, and then when I left university, um, I applied for the Air Force again and, and didn't get in. And I actually got a letter at that stage, stop applying. Yeah. It's not going to happen, Chris. You're done. So <laughs> pretty despondent by that stage. But, you know, I, I think, you know, that was that was where the Air Force path stopped. But it, I got quite a lot out of that, you know, pursuing that. You know, I'd obviously had a flying scholarship and also uh, I'd been on a university air squadron as well. So I'd done you know, a bit of flying for a couple of years with those guys, which, of course, was, was great fun and, and gave me quite a quite a good experience of flying. Yeah, I remember that, actually, because um, I... So you're at university already, went to University of West of England. I arrived a year later. No, actually, didn't. I went at the same time. What are we talking about? Went at the same time, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. We both started at the same yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. And you went and lived down in Bishopston. I lived up in Patchway. It's in Bristol. And then I think second year we moved in, didn't we, some other people and stuff, and it was all good fun. But um, I remember... You'd already gone to university. You joined the University Air Squadron because you were straight under a degree. Now, I was on an HND in aerospace manufacturing engineering, I think it was, with uh, on the French Air campus up to the north. So I wasn't eligible for an air squadron because they only took people on degrees. But yeah. the officer training corps was, they, they would take anyone that was doing any kind of higher qualification. So I joined the officer training corps and spent four years in that doing long-range patrolling competitions. And that's where I got very fond of army, army life, that kind of thing, and was looking to join the Royal Marines. Um, and in the end end up joining the navy it's a bit weird isn't it but yeah it's <laughs> strange that all works out but I, I do say to people if they go to university if they have an interest in the services then that's that's like the best way you can ever um sort of get an idea about what you're doing yeah. isn't it is joining one of those definitely clubs yeah absolutely i mean i thought it was um amazing really being yes it did flying on the uas which was great but actually you got access to you know, summer camps on RAF bases and, you know, mixing and socialising with, you know, regular serving people in the armed forces. So it wasn't just about being part of a club. It was actually part of, it was about being you know, a member of the reserve forces, really, yeah. uh, and getting really good experience and, and exposure. So definitely, and whether it's Army, you know, University Air Squadron or, or the Navy with the uh, um, the uh, Ernie University Royal Naval Unit. I mean, God, I mean, Tim, that was 20 odd years ago now. So uh, I'm hoping that those organizations are still the same um, or have a similar ethos behind them. I'm sure they do. Um, whether the amount of flying is still available on the UAS or not, I don't know. I think it's reduced down, but who knows? Well, we still go to the annual dinner. We're not going this year, but the OTC have an annual dinner. And of course, they fleece us of cash, basically. Um, <laughs> it's amazing. When I was in the OTC, we used to go, this is not even supposed to be on the topic, by the way, we need to change this. But we used to like um, go on summer camps to like Barry Budden or uh, used to go into Scotland and, um, and then down to Senny Bridge and, and down in Wales. And now they're going out to Cyprus and Canada. And I'm like, well, how do they afford that? And that's because they have these massive raffles that we pay loads of money into. Yeah, mate, you're supporting that. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's my money, isn't it? So they, they keep like inviting us down there and stuff. I'm like, what? But like, it's, it's good to go and see the guys. They always put like a Cambrian patrol guy on the table as well. He's like ripped up like 18-year-old or something. You know what I mean? And I'm like, yeah, I did Cambrian and I was smaller than you when I did it back then, you know. But um, right, anyway, what we're supposed to be talking about, really, apart from how great university was for us and, and all the kind of crazy things we did there in the flying, is uh, really what you did then in the Navy, and that will roll us into probably transition, yeah. which is quite nice, into, uh, which I want to talk about the kind of life outside more than anything, because I think people that listen to the podcast, a lot of people are not in the military and they are outside working and they're quite interested um, in how sort of military guys transition out. 
Yeah, so in sure. the Navy. So you joined basically Dartmouth. I can't think of a date. I think I'm going to say 97. January 98. So in ah, 97, okay. I, I was then working in London. I'd, the whole Air Force career thing had obviously fall, fallen flat. Yeah. Um, and I went to London, lived with my girlfriend at the time. I had no idea what I was going to do. I walked into Brent Cross Shopping Centre one day, walked into John Lewis and said, can you put me onto a management training course, please? And, and they did pretty yeah. much there and then, which was great. But it was not what I wanted to do at all. And I can remember about six months into this job, I was pretty despondent. And I, I can remember thinking, I'm not going to stand around on a shop floor for the rest of my working career. And that afternoon when I finished, I think I'd done a, an early shift. I finished by about three o'clock in the afternoon. And I went to the careers office uh, for the Royal Navy and uh, went in and basically applied for the fleet air arm. And that was really very rapid. Um, within, I think, about three months, I'd then left John Lewis and I was literally starting you know, at Dartmouth. The, uh, the whole application process seemed to be, I must have just hit the timing well because, uh, as I say, I went through the selection procedure pretty quickly. So Dartmouth in January 98 uh, for a year and then um, fly training. I initially went down the fast jet route, uh, did the um, uh, core basic fast jet training on the Tucano, for a year, clearly there was too much Air Force influence because they chopped me um, <laughs> and then went, went down the, uh, the rotary route and uh, eventually uh, had a very, very rewarding career flying uh, Lynx Mark III, Mark VIII. Um, and I pretty much did everything that I wanted to do in terms of rotary flying. I did a you know, flight pilot's job on the front line, I instructed, uh, did display flying. Um, uh, you know, I really sort of took the Lynx as, as far as I could really. So. 16 years after joining, that's when I then left. So what's the plural of links? Yeah, good one. Don't start I that. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I was, I've just been writing a syllabus for um, uh, one of the other companies I, I actually work for. And they were like, yeah, we need several syllabus. And I'm like, do you mean syllabi? Syllabi? Syllabuses? So I don't know. I mean, you flew links for a long time. You can't even tell what the plural of links is. It probably is links, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah. That's critical yeah. to the podcast that we find oh. out. Brilliant. Mate. I know I'm brilliant, but I could, only, I could only fly one at a time anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but you didn't, did you? Because in the Black Cats, there was two. So you flew as a pair, didn't you? That's right. I, well, yes, yes, I did, yeah. So I did, are they still displaying, are they? Uh, no. So the Black Cats were the sort of Royal Navy's kind of flying display team. Um, and they evolved through several different sort of carnations, I suppose. Um, but when the aircraft went out of service and was replaced by the Wildcat, uh, the the numbers of aircraft and the resources available to support two frontline aircraft displaying every weekend at air shows all around the country for a whole summer, it's, it's a hard push to get those guys yeah. to go do it. They're not, the guys that fly in the team, as, as I did, we, we were not regular full-time sort of display pilots. It was very much something we were doing at weekends and then during the week having to do normal uh, instructing role and everything else. And it's just, yeah, I don't think the resources are there to support it anymore. Yeah, no, I think you're probably right, which is fair enough, isn't it? I read something in the, um, the Sunday Times, uh, was it Telegraph? It was about uh, naval resources. And when Zambellis uh, was offered the carriers, he was offered a choice, wasn't he? He was offered the carriers or the personnel. And I think he took. He said, well, I'll take the carriers. And of course, now you've got a problem actually manning the, the, the carriers themselves. But it's, yeah. it's, across all, it's across all services, isn't it? And a lot of it, I think, is a product, we can deep dive into this maybe, is a product of, uh, um, say, sort of aspiration of the young and what they want to do with their lives. There's a lot more um, things when you scroll through Instagram. There's, there's a whole world of different jobs you can do. It's not just... You look skywards and see an aeroplane. You've got, in fact, there's a guy I was going to talk about later. You might as well cover it now. A guy on LinkedIn um, who people reach out to me all over the place, of course. This guy 
was one of the 170 guys or 180 guys that were chopped back in. Can't do the maths on this at all, but it was a few years back now, seven, eight years going through flying training. Yeah. Um, and they, they chopped them because it was to do with the fact that if they got rid of those guys now early on in training, then they might be able to keep the guys who were already further on. And I understand the reasoning behind it. It hasn't really panned out too well like that, but you, you can't always work out what the future is. But the, the Air Force had just offered him. He went away. He's obviously a fighter, and he went and became a flight instructor down the south coast uh, on light pistons. And he'd just been offered by the Air Force to come back in, go straight to an A400M OCU. Uh, but also, two have offered him a first officer drive. So on, I know, some seven what series, whatever it is, Boeing. Uh, and he was putting a post out on LinkedIn saying, you know, I don't want to do. And I just said, look, you kind of got bitten once, you know. Um, I get bitten again by it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I would go and do the, the airline thing personally because you never know what's going to happen if you go back into the militaries. But that's the attitude now, guys. And they're much more open to different experiences. And I think me and you weren't at the time. I think we were very focused down the, you know, air training corps into some university military club. I mean, I, I even since like Cubs, when I was a kid, when I left the military, what, last, well, this year, since the age of about five, I've always had some kind of weird discipline service. Yeah, I was, yeah, exactly. I mean, I've not been out of a uniform uh, yeah. since the age of 13, actually, you know, yeah. cadets and, you know, UAS and then joining the Navy. And then even now, having left the Navy, I'm still a reservist uh, in the in the Royal Navy Reserve Air Branch. I was going to so, ask that, actually, yeah. So I'm just going to get a picture off my phone because I want to talk about what that means to, to be ex-military and what it does to your personality. And whilst I do that, so you're still a reservist now, but you're not flying anymore, are you? You're still working in the sim, is that right? That's right. So when I left the Navy, I started a business, uh, Proud House Property Management. So I started a service whereby, or business, providing property management and lettings for people in the armed forces. Yep. And um, but I was very lucky. The the Navy have got, or the the fleet air arm, I suppose, have got the Royal Navy Reserve Air Branch, which is a reserve service that you can join. Uh, you can only join it if you've actually got um, military or Navy aviation um, experience and background. And the idea is that uh, the Navy can retain uh, you know, aviation experience that would be otherwise expensive uh, to gain or expensive to lose, depending on how, how you want to view it. Um, and those reservists can still contribute to you know, squadrons. So, and the thing about being in the R&R Air Branch is you're, it's not a band of people together. The, uh, the, the, the members are dispersed among the squadrons and the units and so on to support and augment um, and assist the, the regular guys. So the great thing about that from, and I think we're going to talk about transition at, a, at yeah. some point during this conversation, but the great thing about that is actually the transition process becomes a, a, you know, a lot easier because you've still got those links, you've still got the support, you've still got the, the friendships and the socializing and, uh, and everything else, which is, which is great. Uh, and also you get quite a sense of worth from doing it because you're back in, in a unit contributing you know, your experience and, and knowledge and everything else. So yeah, the, the reservists is a is a great you know for me it, it works really really well there's an, you know another aspect to it as well so much of my business um in in my civvy work uh, relies on military personnel so by going back into uh, my unit and going back to yeovilton where i'm based um, i'm still networking with with potential clients so you know there's a a bit of a, a win-win situation there so it works really well do you miss the flying no no, no, I don't miss it either. I don't miss it. But then again, you've been out longer than me. Um, you went gliding, didn't you? You thought, I know what I'll do. Oh, do you know what? Yes, I... I, and I love this. I thought I was going to need some sort of, you know, uh, replacement aviation yeah. kind of 
weeks, you know, and I thought, do you know what? I don't really want to lose my flying skills. Um, and actually, it's worth pointing out as well, my, my role in the in the reservists, in the air branch, is as a simulator instructor. So I've converted onto the Wildcat as a, a sort of ground school only, so to speak. And I now work, you know, teaching and instructing in, in the Wildcat simulator. So, yes, it's an aviation job, but I'm not flying and I, I don't maintain any kind of military flying currency. And about four years ago, I thought, I know what, I'll go and do some gliding with the with the Yoverton Gliding Club. And um, I did it for a couple of afternoons and it was very pleasant. But I realized that actually, um, <laughs> you know, there was, <laughs> I, it, I wasn't really getting a huge amount out of it. I mean, it's not. And I wasn't enjoying it, but it, it was, you know, there were, I've got other things to do. You know, I've kind of made that realisation, I suppose, that, you know, there are now other things in my life to, to focus on that are just as rewarding. And, um, you know, I'd like to return to aviation and, well, flying specifically at some point in my life. But I think perhaps I'll, I'll become one of those old gits that, you know, flies on a flying club when he's retired and, doddery and mad doesn't really know what he's doing it's probably dangerous to everyone dangerous to everyone and is blissfully unaware and that will suit me perfectly i think but for the time being no i don't i don't need the flying do i miss it no um i think what a lot of people don't necessarily understand about the aviation military aviation environment is the amount of time effort energy stress resources sacrifice you have to make to just get airborne, let alone go and deploy and do a um, you know a high-paced, um, dangerous job anywhere in the world. Uh, so no, I don't miss that. I've done it, uh, but don't need to go back. No, I agree. On my last trip, I went through Shobden, which is a little airfield uh, quite mm-hmm. close to me. Actually, I live near Cheltenham, and uh, obviously there's guys lined up to get airborne, and we kept on the ground, went through that 420 knots at it's, uh, about 250 feet, and just called up Shobden. They'll fly and come through, and I went and gave them a talk, and it's it's um, a light piston club up there. They're lovely guys. I just don't particularly feel the need to go and be part of that. And um, I think there are aspects of it that, you know, we know when, I mean, I was a bomber pilot, right? So I used to plan targets and hit targets to the second. If you can do that, as you know, there's a there's a real sense of achievement with it. And I, I like that. But one thing I realize now, and this is what I, I write about and other stuff that I'm doing, is um, being outside, even though I could lose my job tomorrow, I do a lot of contract work and stuff, um, it doesn't really bother me because there's opportunity out there. And that opportunity comes from the weirdest of places, you know, whether it's a speaking gig or whether it's going in and just sitting in a company and advising or doing the things I'm doing now. I mean, I've, we'll talk about this weird dream I had in a second because that's quite interesting. I'm, I'm interested in your take on that. But I think I'm glad that I did the time I did and I don't look back and wish I'd done more. In fact, I think I overstayed, of anything, by about four years. And we spoke about that because I did 20 years in the end. Um, and I, I would probably, if the sim was closer, if I was near the valley, I'd probably yep. be in the sim a couple of days a week. I'm sure I could do that. I do enjoy helping people out, but I'm not going to go back and live on the island again. I'm not going to live on Anglesey. You know, I need to transition out and stuff. And there's just, I'll tell you the other thing I noticed as well, leaving the military. And where you were based down in Yeovs, you probably haven't realized this, but I lived in Lossie and lived on Anglesey. And that was pretty much my whole 20 years apart from flying training. And when I moved down south, everything is like within 30 minutes drive. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty weird. I met um, Buffy's parents, uh, my wife's parents. I met them in the, in, the, in the pub. We both went down there yesterday. It was down in the Cotswolds. And it took us like 40 minutes to get there. They'd come up from like Oxford. And it was uh, I'm like, we could never have done that before. You know, no. we could never yeah. have, it would have taken us four hours or something. So yeah. I, I like the fact that I can go, oh, I'll just go, go to Cheltenham and have a cup of tea. That never yeah. happened in my 20 years. So there's, there's this interesting, this is something I want to talk to you about as well, was um, that repression, it's not repression, that's the wrong word. What does the service do 
to people in the service, what happens to them? And okay, conformity. Conformity is one of those things. I'm going to show you a quick picture of. Um, I did this test that I think Jordan Peterson recommended to find out on your personality traits. It was like extroversion, openness, conscientiousness, agreeableness, emotional range, and I had zero in openness. Right, and that's quite a bad thing. Okay. What, <laughs> what it means is, and he talks about this, and he says if you if you it means you're not open to new experiences. Um, you're very conservative, very conformist. The questions that were on his test, whatever it was called, and I'll try and put a link in the uh, the podcast here, were things like, do you like poetry and, and and seek out opera and all this kind of stuff? And I was like, no, I don't. I'm, I just don't. I don't do it. I haven't got any time for that really, which is awful. But then I do enjoy certain things. Like I've got. I've got given some bonsai trees for Christmas. I've got to plant them and do all that stuff. I'm interested in that. So there's different aspects. And I don't think it was like a zero, really, probably like a 20% for openness. But either way, my openness was very low. Then I found something in a paper about the English rugby team. And I'm just going to put this here. You might be able to see that. You might not be able to. I don't know if you said. Yeah, I can see that. A very, very lopsided um, pentagon. Yeah, so that, that bit that's collapsed on the side there uh, for the team, the English rugby team, is openness. They score very low in openness. And they score average in the rest of them which was extroversion which i think um peterson says is something like neuro um neuroticism sorry and then which is very high in women apparently which and there's agreeableness which interestingly my wife is not my wife is very high in agreeableness um, <laughs> and i'm very low in agreeableness <laughs> and that's interesting really because when it comes to neuroticism you want to have someone who's high to be balanced by someone who's low and i, I get yeah. that yeah. Sometimes with things like agreeableness, you, you both want to kind of be roughly the same, apparently. And openness, if you're living with someone who's very open and you're not very open, that causes problems. So now we, she did the test as well. We put them both together and we're like, I kind of understand why sometimes, you know, it'd be better to live apart or something, you know, where sometimes we don't always agree. And that's fine. I get that. But that was really interesting. So what is it with the service that it does to us? I know there's an aspect of conformity. We go in, we conform. We like conforming. We've been Cubs. We've been Scouts. We've been in Air Training Corps. We've been in the University Air Squadrons or whatever it is. Uh, we go into the military. We are conformists. Traditionally, maybe right of centre, uh, maybe conservative. I think that's pretty much um, approved and, and, and well written about in the services. But is it us? What I'm saying is here, is the service repressing us in any way? Or are we repressing ourselves about our lack of going out and having experiences and everything else. What is that? Well, I think it's a really interesting question. I think a lot of it comes down from the, uh, the very strong sense of um, a teamwork and esprit de corps, which is engendered and, and fostered in, in the armed forces. Most people want to feel like they're conforming and, and belonging to a team. So you're perhaps likely to alter your, even temporarily, and temporarily might be for the, the whole duration of your your career in the armed forces i suppose but you're likely to alter perhaps your let's take openness as a as an example perhaps you're likely to alter that um to conform with the other people in the team but uh, i think the other thing that's really really important to consider is it, with the armed forces you you have to you have to win you have to have the, the winning mentality because when it comes to armed conflict you, you can't have people that are not thinking you know that they're, 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 they're going to win or, or succeed so we're constantly being told on our military units that we're with the best unit or with the best squadron or you're the best pilot um you're always kind of in some sort of competition friendly competition really with with your peers and, and other people on on the unit um and i think that whole process is has a very um long-term uh, i can't think of the word uh, effect where after you know the cumulative effect of, of being told you're great um or you're good or you need to win or you need to succeed means that probably by the time you finish your 
your careers, you're not necessarily going to be open to um, something that uh, conflicts with that mindset that you've been in. Um, yeah. And I, I think there are some military units, um, I'm not going to start naming them, but, um, you know, where that sense of, um, uh, what's the word? Self-belief. Uh, self-belief? Yeah, that's, that's exactly that. Yeah. That sense of self-belief is, is so strong that actually you, you end up with people who lead the armed forces almost a little bit arrogant and institutionalized. Um, you yeah. know, and that's, that's the completely out of balance, uh, sort of uh, hard over effect of that process, I think. So I had John Dunn on the podcast recently, uh, an F3 pilot. I don't know if you know John. You yeah. Know, I think, yeah, from Linton. He was a Linton instructor. I know he's there your time, but he's, he went through on similar time to us. And I said that um, I felt there were people that I stayed in contact with who'd left the military who were quite humble. So they, they, they had a high aspect of humility and, and they weren't arrogant. And he said, I said, so they didn't have any ego. And he corrected me. He said, well, we've all got ego. We have to have ego in order to do the job. And he's right, of course. There's a level, isn't there, which you get challenged to, and you're yeah. like, dude, you have no idea what you're talking about. I fly jets for a living, whatever, go away. So we do have that level. But I think that introspection is something that um, the people I stay in contact with out of the military, and there's not that many of people that I've, I've flown with for a long period of time, a lot of them in the desert out in Saudi, a lot of them like yourself, whatever, I've got a history with. I'm quite surprised at the lack of people, but our lifestyles are transient, of course, weren't they? So yeah. you, might not, you might know a guy and his wife for, 12, uh, for two years and then they're gone, you know, but... You always pick up the lost pieces. I think the guys I keep in contact with um, are introspective. They, they look back and they, they debrief themselves constantly, which is not yeah. necessarily a healthy thing. I'm not saying it is, but they're always thinking, how could I have done that better? Uh, what did I do the other day? And I thought, I've actually made a mistake there. And I, I had to, I'm, I'm, with, I'm with Buffy and she's like, oh, you're going to do this again. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm interested how that's happened. I, and I had to kind of then deep dive into that to go well why didn't i forecast that happening it's not often these things happen and normally we plan ahead don't we in everything we do which is a big problem for us because it means that we yeah. can't necessarily live in the moment which i yeah. know you're doing better at than i am by the way right you're doing, okay. much, you're doing much better this than i am because i'm awesome. still well you know you know what i'm talking about when this happens so um i still think you know what am i gonna do next year the year after you know i plan these things to the nth degree and i remember you once telling me about holidays um someone in your life was planning and immediately you thought about the whole thing about, well, if we go to this country and we do this, and this is happening in the hills. And, if you, and I was like, yeah, you do what I do. You, you think about the nth degree and you do it so quickly. And I, I wrote an essay about that. Um, I can't remember what it was called now. I have to Google my stuff now because I've written so much. But it was about pilot um, literally saying, look, you don't understand. I've, I've thought about this to the, yeah. the sixth degree and I've done it in half a second and you can never even understand where I am. <laughs> you know? yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to appreciate the now. That's what I'm getting at. But you are a lot better at this, and that's probably because you've been out a few more years, I guess, is it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably true. Um, uh, being surrounded by people, I mean, I now run my business and the people that I employ and a lot of my a lot of my clients are military, but I don't have day-to-day -day contact with them. I have more contact now with my local tradesmen who are doing maintenance for, on the properties that I manage. I've got my staff and my employees. I've got local businesses that I deal with. So I'm, you know, completely dealing with, um, you know, civilian people. Um, and you can't control those people. You know, it's not like being in, in, the, in, in the military anymore where you've all got the same mindset and you've all got pretty much the same aim and ambition and objective and everything else. You're, you're dealing with a complete, you know, mix and myriad of people who have all got their own motives and, and, and objectives in life. And you really have to kind of go with the flow. Um, and it's interesting what you were talking about earlier about, you know, make, you know, making the mistake. That for me is probably one of the, the biggest obstacles that I, I have 
I've come across. When I make a mistake or when my staff make mistakes, uh, I often want to evaluate them and I want to work out why something has happened, what the cause and effect was, and then put in place, you know, some measures or procedures to, to prevent it happening again. And that's all very well and good. But there also gets to a point where you just have to say, oh, sod it. it, you know, it, it doesn't matter, move on. Because actually the, the time spent trying to gold plate everything and, and make it make it perfect is, is not worth the, the outcome because people will always make mistakes and you're never gonna change someone's, you know, if you've got a member of staff and their objective is just to work and turn up and, and get paid and, and go home again, you're never gonna make that person be, you know, a, a, a highly ambitious, you know, career orientated um, achiever. If that's not what they want to be, that they're not going to be that. Um, and you have to have that sort of uh, mentality more, I think, to, to succeed in 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 Civvy Street, because uh, you know, in, in the armed forces, you don't have that. You know, you've got very, very similar personality types. Or if, if it's not similar personality types, you've got people with very similar mindsets. Yeah, I, well, that's really valid. And um, yeah, so... I think you're absolutely right. I've, what I forget now, I'm in Civvy Street, is that we went through a lot of training, uh, just in initial officer training, or um, you know, with the Air Force or in Tanya Royal Naval College. We went through about a year of that. Yeah. To, and that's all preparing you for what you're going to do. And then obviously, yeah, the I mean, professional training, it took like how long for a flying training? Like three years, like more than that, probably four years. And then yeah. I come back out to Civvy Street and I expect people to um, do the things I'm doing and, and turn up to meeting on time. And, and if I've asked them to do something, yeah. they get it done. If they can't do it, then they should tell me that they haven't done it. Because I'm kind of split now. This is where I'll tell you about this dream. This, this segue is quite nice in that this weird dream I had last night. I don't really dream too much. So I, this dream is like, um, and this is this is where you can do your Doctor Crisp bit and you can analyze me, or whatever. And you can go. <laughs> so um, I'm in this I'm in this dream, right? And I, I woke up and thought I'm going to Google this and work out what this meant because I don't really dream. And it's all about like I lost my phone. So I um, I was going back to like a halls or like a, a mess room or something, you know, whatever it would be. They're all quite similar. I end up in the middle of this one. I'm checking my phone. I mean, I'm standing in the middle of my room, whatever. And I soon realize it's not my room. It's someone else's room. So I'm looking around. It's not my stuff. I'm like, I'm in someone else's room. Um, so I'm like, oh, this is kind of weird. So I kind of, okay, okay, I better go back to my own room. And I go back to my own room. But then when I get to my own room, eventually find it, I'm like, oh, I haven't got my phone with me. I better go back and get my phone. I must have left it in that room or somewhere on the way. So I go back and I try and find my phone. On the way back, this is my dream, by the way, I yeah. find other phones. I look at them and I'm like, these are similar phones, but they're not my phone. And I go back in and I, I can't find this other room again. I can't find my phone. So it's all about losing your phone. And I'm like, that's really weird. And I kind of wake up. I'm like, I've never, like, I don't really dream anyway. I don't dream about losing my phone. What's going on? So I had to go and Google that. And it, if, if the loss of the phone thing is about, I've got it written down here on, on my screen. It's about, um, there's like a loss of status or it can be about separation, uh, i.e. there's someone that you're not able to connect with anymore, you know what I mean, um, yeah. or something. It's about being emotionally stranded somewhere. It's kind of weird. And that's what the internet is telling me. So I went and did the deep dive analysis on this, which, of course, you'd expect anyone in our position to do. Like, So what does that mean for me? And I, it could be something to do with when they leave the military. I left the military first of June. We have some gardening leave before that, which takes about three months where you do some courses, which hopefully we'll chat about in a minute. So maybe I don't really have a status at the moment. I'm not identified as Tim. You know, when I was flying jets, everyone knew Tim Davies, you fly jets. That's fine. You're an instructor. That's what you do. And now I'm the chairman of a rowing club. I've been rowing for like a year and a half. They just made me the chairman. So I've got to host a meeting tonight. So I'm a chairman of a rowing club. I am a consultant working down for a big UK prime who's um, bidding into ASDOT, which is the Air Support Defense Operational Training. It's um, the Red Air, what 736 Naval Air Squadron and 100 Squadron do 
for yeah. a Typhoon to tornado. So I do consultant work on that, bringing um, a, a jet platform in. Uh, I'm the strategy director for a company called Aerolist. I spoke about that on my last podcast where we're trying to design three aircraft um, with a common core fuselage. And that's very interesting. But there's, there's all these different things. I'm running a podcast. I do the website. I do a lot of speaking. I'm doing these things. And yet, you know, what am I actually? You know, and do I need to be defined as something? Because I thought when I left the service, I would be. And a lot of people leave and they go and join, I don't know, BA Systems, don't they? And they're a yeah. business development guy in BA Systems. Uh, and I guess you left. Uh, I can't remember what your transition was like. And that's maybe a good thing to talk about. But that's what I'm thinking about now is, do I need a status? A, is that important to me as a person? Is it really important that I have a status and I'm known as something? Um, do I need to create a, an empire and, and be exceptionally wealthy? I don't think I do. I think we transition. As we hit 40, I think priorities become quite different, don't they? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. You know, we we talked about that before. Um, we're trying to work out what contentment and happiness is, and purpose, maybe. And the the way I'm looking at this now, all these things, I'm looking at it from a sense of responsibility because I think responsibility. If you have responsibility in your life, then you have some aspect of direction. So the transition for me is is still ongoing. Is what I'm saying. I haven't really worked yeah. out what I want to do. I mean, I know you're in a defined role because you have a business and you employ people, and the difficulties yeah. that happen with that, and that's what we. I enjoy talking to you about and how those things kind of work. But coming out of the service and being entrepreneurial does not that those two words don't necessarily lend themselves to each other quite well. What what did you do in transition then that led you into what you're doing now? Because when you came out, I think you did a what was the course you did? Electrician's course, something, wasn't it? Yeah, I did that. Um, which I mean I'll talk about that in a minute, but just sort of you'd go back to I suppose the the start of um my transition. Um I knew that I didn't want to be the sort of person at the age of 50, 55, or possibly even older, still in the armed forces, having only ever done one thing in my whole life. Yeah. And I also knew that I didn't want, to, I wanted to leave the armed forces or leave the Navy whilst still feeling good about what I was doing and about the, the people and the role and so on. Because you always see that old guy in the bar, in the mess, in the wardroom, whatever. He's been in the Navy for years and he's always the bloke having a drink and saying, oh, it's not like it used to be, you know, and so on. I don't want to be that person, you know, and... So I knew that 16 years was my natural career break. And um, for about seven or eight years before that point, you know, so only halfway through my career, I was getting my annual, you know, appraisals. And you have to tick a box as to whether you're a volunteer for further service. And most people tick that box. You know, why not? It's 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 not it's not compulsory to stay on. But if you if you tick the box to say you're a volunteer for further service, then you're like more likely to be considered for promotion and be able to stay for longer than 16 years and so on. And I deliberately resisted ticking that box because I wanted to make sure that the 16-year point, I didn't have an option to stay. Yeah, brilliant. I wanted yeah. to be to almost force myself to go so that I was actually in a position where I had to make that decision, okay, what am I going to do now? So I made that decision really, really early on. Um, and then also, I, I knew that I wanted to run a business. My, I come from a family of, of business owners, I suppose. Um, you know, certainly on my, on my, on, on my dad's side, uh, the family, uh, I've grown up in a, you know, in, in a home life where uh, my parents were not employees. They were, they were small business owners. Uh, so for me, I suppose it felt quite natural to want to run my own business. Um, but the question really was, well, what? And without going into too long a story, uh, I had a conversation with my um, my ex-wife's father, ex-father-in-law, and he ran a property management and lettings business in Oxford. And we had a conversation over it one lunchtime. And he basically said, well, you know, he's probably 
could run a run a business doing you know management and lettings for people in the armed forces. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll give that a go. And that was the plan. And I incorporated the company in 2010. So that was four years before I actually left the Navy. And I just kept ticking over in my mind what what the what the kind of outline business plan was, what the model was, and what I was going to try and achieve. And I just kept working on that bit by bit. I got things like the website ready. I did some graphic design and logo work uh, and so on. and did all the basics so that by the time 2014 came along, which is when I was due to leave the Navy, I was at the stage where I really wanted to kind of, you know, crack on. You know, I was actually, I was finding that staying in the Navy was, was hindering me. And I was really, really keen just to get outside and, and get on with the business. So in terms of the transition process, um, in the R forces, I think, are, are very good in terms of their um, resettlement programs. There's a lot of courses available down in Aldershot and also um, grants and, and, and all, all sorts of bits and pieces available. But I'd set up this business of, of lettings and property management. And you talk about status. I mean, leaving the, the, the Royal Navy as a fleet air arm helicopter pilot and becoming a letting agent. I mean, that is a little bit of a letdown when it comes to um, status. You know, our, the lettings industry has got a very bad reputation or certainly some parts of the country it has. So, you know, there was quite a few sort of questions for me to you know, resolve in my own mind about that sort of change of status. But the running the business thing was a real, it felt really natural for me. Um, and the courses available for um, career transition, mm. there was a business owner's course and there was a course on you know doing self-assessment tax and, and, and bits and pieces like that. But none of those courses would have created a plan for me. They would have supplemented or they did supplement the plan that I already had, but they, they wouldn't have actually helped me create a, a business. And I think for my lesson to anyone leaving the military and starting a business themselves is, is get get your plan prepared nice and early, you know, work out what it is that you want to do and then and then cherry pick the stuff that's available to, to help you and assist you. Um, but don't expect someone to just come and lay it all down for you uh, and create, create a business. It's not going to happen. You're going to have to do it and you have to do it nice and early. No, I think it's valid. I mean, it's so true, isn't it? I, I used a lot of that three months in transition. I think I did a course in crew resource management trainer, so I'm a CRMT instructor. Uh, that was for a week, and that really just repeated the stuff that I was writing about already for the last yeah. few years, which is which is great. Yeah. Kind of formalised it. Um, yeah. I, go and, I go and speak to some companies about that. I spoke to the NHS and some uh, some big businesses. Uh, I'm not overly sure that's particularly what my future is of standing there and saying, "Let's talk about." You know, I, I don't necessarily. I don't want to do the keynote talks for people yeah. that you know last an hour and a half. But um, I'm still trying to work out what those things are. I quite like the variety. But yeah. why, didn't, why didn't you go and work for like some big defense prime or something? I don't understand. Well, you had like Westlands down there and stuff. You could have done something like that and BD and stuff, couldn't you? Yeah, I could. Um, and, you know, perhaps that might have been something. Oh, Tim, I'll be really honest with you. But I, mean, I loved flying. I loved military life. And I loved, yeah. you know, really enjoyed being on the Scorchion and, and, and so on. But I'm, I'm not the sort of person that's into... To, you know, analysing defence and, and and hardware and and, and politics and uh, and everything else you know, on, on that side of things. You know that that just wasn't really me. Um, and you know, perhaps perhaps developing or consulting or advising on some kind of you know military project for a defence company might be great. But I also think, well, if I've got that energy and 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 analysis and, and mind power to do that for someone else, then why not do it? for myself yeah. um, but also going back to what you were saying about the different things that you sort of did do or have been involved with I mean, you've done a very similar thing to what i i did you, you set up 
you know, various options and paths that you could take in, and you see which one grows, you see which one develops. I mean, you mentioned I did some electricians courses because they were available, um, very, very cheap, uh, really, you know, great quality training to go out and become an electrician, you know, and I, and I, and I did all that. And, but I only kind of really did it as a, a bit of a backup in case the whole business plan fell apart. Uh, and if I really needed to just go and put an advert in the local paper and, and go and do some electrical work on people's houses, because I quite like, I've got tools and I quite like, you know, doing hands-on stuff. You know, it, it was an option there. Funnily enough, <laughs> I started doing quite a bit and I started getting a reputation amongst, you know, my, my military mates as an electrician and not as a business owner. And it was almost going, you know, slightly, um, I was gaining a reputation that I didn't want, you know, I wanted yeah. people to know me for, for, for the business uh, that I had actually started, which was my main, um, my main effort. So I suppose be, be careful uh, as well in, in what you, you do end up doing. You, you might become known for, for something that's not, yeah. not really what your, what your main aim is. Um, but that's all sort of distilled out now. Obviously I'm on, on, on quite a good path with, with my business. Um, and, I can now afford to just stop drop, you know, start dropping some of those bits and pieces. So I've done, you know, hardly any electrical work. I mean, that's that was as I say as a backup really, and that's that's now fallen by the wayside. Um, the R and R as a reservist is still important to me, but who knows? It might be that in the next few years I don't quite need that so much. Who knows? Um, all, all depends on how life works out, really. No, I'm quite interested in that. I'm interested because maybe you're saying something about the electrician work that you were doing in. And there was always like there was going to be a default that you couldn't get above. In effect, you were going to be in, you know, if you carried on doing that, you're going to be an electrician. You're going to face the same problem that electricians faced. You'll probably end up wiring up bovis or wimpy houses. It was going to be that's what your job would be every day. You go and do that, and then you do that forever. And then other people come in the trade, and you know, you see what I mean. It was like there was no yeah. scalable kind of potential of that. Uh, I'm quite yeah. interested. And the, the problem I've got right here as a one man guy who goes out and does stuff and works with different businesses. Um, I don't mind the politics. You understand that in defense world, there is a lot of politics, especially with Aerolist at the moment, because we're hanging on with some real senior defense primes who we're a small startup, but they're quite big. Um, I would like them to help us with the PR and stuff. And of course, they won't because we're not always on contract. But there's a lot of politics with that. As, as a one person, me, that's not really scalable. You see what I mean? It's like... Um, how do I, with your company, you could, you could, you're a letting agency. So all around the South, of course, eventually, I know you've spoken about this before. You go, yeah. oh, it's going to be another proud house. There'll be a, another proud. And you could do that. But with that, of course, comes the employment of people. People are a bit of a nightmare sometimes. <laughs> How dare they think for themselves? Um, and you've got to manage that. And now you start becoming a manager. Your time is now taken up with sitting in the office, which we know is a very toxic environment to be in. That's what I'm in at the moment, typing away. Um, you're not out engaging with people. And that's what we want to do. So, yeah. You get to the point where no matter what you career you take when you leave the military, you've really got to look at a long term and think about what you want, haven't you? Because if you if you are going to pick a skill, like I want to be a bricklayer or something or, or, or whatever it might be, even an architect, you're still that one person. Yeah. Um, and you might be picking something that has no scalable potential. Yeah. And more to the point, um, you can never take a back step out of it because no. it relies on you being there and if i was out there talking to companies the whole time I mean, i'm trying to drop the coaching a little bit now as well because it gives me more free time but if i'm out there the whole time standing in front of companies because it's me then then that, that i've got to be there physically yeah and when yeah. i retire I, that stops and how yeah. and that's a real big issue for me so um i'm trying to work out how to influence something where i can literally take a back steps to keep it going and trying to work out what that project is i mean you have that vehicle at the moment but it's, it's one of those things I'll see. You know what I did when I left it? I'll just tell you right now real quick. 
the first job I applied for was um, I know my wife said this to you already, isn't she? Because she does this. I, I applied to be uh, there was an advert for a giraffe keeper at a zoo. I thought I thought I could do that. I didn't realize you had to have a degree in zoology to, to look after giraffes. I was like, I own giraffes. I, I've seen giraffes on TV. I could do that. Um, That's so, so necky of you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was giraffes anyway. I know everything about giraffes. Um, I even read up on like Wikipedia about giraffes and all that. They've got like non-return valves in the neck and stuff to stop them, you know, blood pressure and all stuff. Um, but it came with another side as well. You're a giraffe trainer, but you had to kind of look after the rhinos as well. And I got, I got told, <laughs> I got told that, yeah, you're not, you're not allowed to do that. You don't even come and apply. I was put off by that. But um, <laughs> so that was my first failure when I left the military. I, I'm not allowed to be a giraffe keeper. I mean, how hard is it being a giraffe keeper? So um, what would you get? What's the advice then you give the people when they left the military? Because I've been thinking about this. What would I tell someone leaving the military and they were unsure of what work they wanted to do? Because when we come out, by the way, we have very little idea. And yeah. we really do. Very little idea. We're very closeted, I guess. But by the definition, as you said, you know, of being yeah. in the military. I think my biggest piece of advice would be, you know, believe in yourself and, and, and look at the skills that you've got. You've got more than you think you have. In the armed forces, especially coming from an aviation environment, you it's very prescribed what you can and can't do. You've got a certain amount of experience. You've got a certain number of flying hours. You've got to achieve a certain number of hours a month to be able to maintain sort of currency or whatever it might be. And you've got all this sort of tick box sort of um, mentality that that kind of dictates what you can and, and can't do. Uh, when, when you go into City Street, you, you know, I don't want to say the world is your oyster. That's a really sort of cheesy expression. But you do have, you, it's all there ready for you to just dive in and, and get stuck in. You need resources and you need a plan. But there's, there's, no, there's not going to be anybody saying you can't do that. There will be people that will say that. But there's, they're, not, they're not going to be the people that are actually going to put up a, a barrier. Um, you know, if you want to, and I'm talking about from running a business point of view here. You know, if you want to run a business, whatever it might be. Obviously, you've got to have a good business plan. Your idea has got to be viable. Um, it's got to be a service or an item that, that, that people want. But I think the people that come from the armed forces, you've got so much experience in terms of planning, organization, evaluation, being self-critical, being able to take criticism. You know, all those things are really, really necessary because as you've mentioned in your blog articles in the past, you know, failure it's about failing and then learning from the mistakes, picking yourself up and then and then moving forward. Uh, and I think people in the armed forces are actually very, very good at doing that. Um, it's almost been, you know, they've made a career of, of, of doing that sort of stuff, really. Um, so I think that would be my main advice to people yeah. uh, in the military would be, you know, believe, believe in yourself and, and, and look at look at what it is that you've you've got in terms of your your personal attributes, you'll be a lot stronger and a lot more resilient than than the equivalent civilian person at, at, at your you know, age or stage in life, definitely. I had to look up recently, and I was, there was someone in the office, and I had to ask her about it because she was a civilian, and I said, I don't understand what's happening um, with this thing. And it was about, um, uh, what do they call it, when someone is, uh, I can't remember the term now. You know when someone is, is like, they're, they're, they're sort of saying that you're not doing something, but they're saying it in a tone you know what I mean? It's, uh, I can't remember what the, the actual phrase is now. I've just escaped me. But I was like, the office politics, we don't really understand. We never really kind of have it. We never see these things. We're quite open and honest with each other. And we're quite direct. We're really direct, yes. aren't we? You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't really happen outside. It's, the, it's almost like kind of spoken around in some environments. I work heavily military, so that's pretty good. Uh, I would say half the office is military. But um, half the office isn't. And yeah. um, very often, sometimes, something's said that I don't understand. 
And I'm like, okay, I don't, I don't know what that means. I've got to go and ask someone what, what exactly is he or she saying to me. It's almost uh, sort of putting something down you've done, but in a kind of way that's not hostile, but it kind of yeah. is. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, I can, I've got a little sort of story about that. We, so with the business that I run, we've got so many sort of clients and, and, and you know, properties and landlords and tenants and maintenance issues. It's really important that we log everything we do. So I've designed and created and, and maintain a, a, you know, a fairly complex database of stuff, which does all sorts of things for us. But one of the uh, important things is, is we, we log our activity. Yeah. And the important thing about those log records is you should be able to read back through them and understand what they what they mean clearly. So one of the things I've had to say to my staff is don't just use them as a sort of a notes to self system. You, you know, as the member of staff might be able to read back through them and understand what they what, what those log messages mean. But if they don't mean anything to anyone else, then they're kind of pointless, really. And this was a real challenge for a good year or so, trying to go back through the log records and, and fathom out what some members of staff were writing and what they meant was really quite difficult. So I started a process whereby I could give a... Um, a green tick or a red cross next to a log record. It was like my way of marking the log records to say whether I could understand them or not. Anyway, I started this process and the staff did not like it at all. If they got a red cross, you know, they were really uh, quite upset thinking that I was you know, angry with them. I was upset with them. They were going to lose their job. And I was trying to say, no, this is all about just trying to indicate to you that I can or cannot understand this message. So I then changed it. I got rid of the Red Cross and I, I turned it into uh, like an emoji, thinking thinking face emoji. But even then, people didn't like getting the thinking face emoji. You know, green ticks they liked, thinking face emoji. No, they didn't. It's incredible. And I thought, how do I get? How do I have some sort of a, a basic evaluation system here so that I, you know I can give feedback to my staff so that they know whether what they're writing actually makes any sense or not. And. Um, I eventually turned, I basically had to abandon it. I mean, I really, you know, it was, I just approached it from a different point of view in the end, in that I would just be very repetitive, very nice, and just say, every time there was something that I couldn't understand, I would go to the relevant member of staff and say, I'm sorry, I don't understand this. Can you rewrite it, please? And you just, it's just that repetitive process. Right. Whereby, you know, you just have to creep in a very nice, polite way, say, I don't understand this. Can you rewrite it? And that's worked. Um, okay. But the, the, the direct negative approach of, you know, I do not understand what you're writing, so I'm putting a big red, red cross next to it, it, it doesn't work. That's, Whereas yeah. you, and me, you and me would take that in a very literal sense. be like, okay, um, I must do better, uh, so I will. Yeah. Yeah, different mentality, definitely. Well, it's a military mentality, isn't it? I suppose what we do in the military, we cut out all the, the chaff on the outside. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to write a big long passage of um, of feedback to someone. I just want to give them a red cross if they don't understand. Yeah. It's, kind of not, it's not even personal, is it? Really, it's not even personal. If anything, you're saying, look, this could be a problem with me that I don't understand it. I just, you know what I mean. But I just need you yeah. to be a bit more direct. The, the term was um, passive aggressive. That was a thing. That, yes, I, I had to ask this lady, and it was she wasn't doing it to me. Don't get me wrong, but I had to say, look, you've been a civilian for 20 years. I've been in the military, um, uh, and she said, oh yeah, that's what you're witnessing there is passive aggressive behaviour. And I was like. I don't know what that means. I've kind of heard it on like TV programs. Yeah. And, and I, I don't think I'd ever experienced it in the military where someone is literally, I think, being condescending to you. There's examples you can look up on the internet. I had to literally Google what does passive, what does passive aggressive terms mean? Yeah. Um, and someone's literally putting you down, but they're saying, oh, an example would be, um, oh, you've, do, you've done really well to get this job considering your background. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that, 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 apparently that's a passive aggressive term. And so I, and of course I was going, oh, thank you. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, thank you. I, I get, and I'm like, you feel a bit hurt by it, but you don't know why. And so um, I, I get a lot of that sometimes outside the military. I never had before. Uh, not necessarily to me. I see it to other people. Another thing I did when I left as well was I tried to keep meetings on time with a schedule, with an agenda, with a debrief, with a, you know, that kind of stuff, with minutes that had to be actioned. Yeah. That's never worked. Um, you know, running this uh, chair of this rowing club. And again, it's like herding cats. There's, there's good people, bad people. I get how it is. Um, yeah. I just realized I can't imprint the last 20 years in the military onto. No. And I shouldn't try. As you're saying, you shouldn't try. You should just bring the best examples you can with you. Don't take it personally. Try and input in a real positive way to whatever environment you're in. Uh, understand that people are, uh, have frailties like we do as well. Uh, and then, and kind of sort of run with that really. It's, yeah. um, it's interesting, especially with um, with that openness thing I was talking about earlier. I, I realise there's gaps in my education in the last 20 years when it comes down to now being a civilian. So I'm looking at what I need to do now to, as I said, with openness, I obviously lack in that trait. So I've gone and done things like um, I've said to my wife, okay, let's go to a ballet. Let's let's read some books I wouldn't read. Let's, you know, I don't watch I don't watch much TV. So now I. I sit down on a Sunday and she makes me watch you know, an episode of whatever TV. So I'm trying to broaden my horizons in that. When you left then, was there anything apart from, obviously you've, you've clarified some things. What did you think, you know, I'm really lacking in this particular thing? Uh, like maybe, could you have seen that you were lacking in anything before you left the military? I say um, lacking. You know what I mean when I say lacking? I'm not saying it was a fault of yours or anything. I'm just yeah. saying that. I definitely felt daunted. I mean, you've talked about imposter syndrome in the past. Yeah. I definitely felt that. I mean, I... One thing I didn't explain, I the other thing I suppose a lot of my sort of colleagues in the Navy um, knew me as someone that knew about property because I'd refurbished my own houses that I'd lived in. So occasionally people would come to me to ask about DIY problems, you know, or how do I, you know, I've got this broken bit of skirting board or whatever it might be. And I'd give them little tips and hints on doing stuff. So I became this sort of person around the squadron that people kind of knew as someone that knew about kind of property. And I did kind of capitalize on that a little bit when I left and sort of big myself up. But really, deep down, there was me, you know, leaving the, the, the Navy, setting up a business as a property manager, kind of someone that knew about property investment and all that sort of stuff. And in fairness, I, I was a landlord, you know, and I've, you know, I'll talk about my property portfolio another time, perhaps. But I definitely felt like an imposter because I was, I was, I was blagging it. You know, I really was. People were asking me questions about property, about investment, about rentals, and so on. And um, I would always say, "Yeah, no, no worries. I can find out an answer for that. I'll just give me a few minutes, and I'll get back to you." And then I was like, of course, running around with my hair on fire, looking up references and, and documents and, and books to find out the relevant piece of information that this client needed. So. Definitely lacking experience, but of course everyone's gonna. Everyone starts from from you know a position of of no experience. You you kind of have to depending on you know what area that you're going to go into really. So again, it's just about that resilience to to approaching and recognizing your uh, your shortfalls or your your areas that you don't have. Um, you know, perhaps the the knowledge or the experience that you need, but it's about having that resilience to make sure you can still perform and give the service that people want. I also think it's the ability to understand, as we have, that you may well fail at your first job, right? Um, maybe even your second or your third one. I mean, you might be asked to move on or whatever, and it's it's not necessarily a reflection on you. Uh, it's a reflection on just the environment you've gone into, and, and you just don't understand it because you haven't been in it before. Uh, yeah. That's what I'm finding. And one of my jobs, my contract's going to end pretty soon. 
And if it gets renewed, I'll probably carry on down there. I, I might not. I'll see. You know, it's one of those things. I might move on somewhere else. I'm, I'm really not concerned. What's interesting yeah. to me is, 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 the, is hopefully, in a way, I'm saying hopefully um, it won't be renewed. I don't mean it in a negative sense because I really enjoy working with the people I'm working with down there. And the, the problems are exceptionally complicated and the timeframes are very small. So yeah. but what I mean is uh, I'm doing that for now and I have done for the last four or five months. It'll be nice to do something else to give me more life experience in something else. And then maybe I could do two or three major projects a year whilst I'm doing the things I want to do in the background. Yeah. Uh, if I could still go out and help people to bring in some kind of quality and value into their business, whatever that might be, then I don't mind doing that. But I don't, I don't want to lose track of what I'm doing as well. Just trying to figure out what that actually is, of course. And I don't think there was time, I don't think there was time in the service, though, to really work it out. You know, no. You see what I mean? We don't, you know, when you're talking about like planning for detachment or whatever, it's all encompassing. And it's only now I've left. I realize how like 24 hours a day that really was. It was yeah. just, and even in the evenings, you're still, you know, you know what trips you got to do the next day, you know what instruction you have to do. Um, yeah. And you do the work for it, you get in, that trip changes, short notice, yeah. you've got to do that work again. And I look back on the squadrons I was on in the past, there was an underlying level of stress, I think, that is yeah. no longer in my life. It's a different kind of stress, but yeah. that stress isn't there anymore. So I find that quite interesting. And when you leave, I remember thinking as a, not immediately, but after a month or so, there felt, uh, although there was apprehension, there was also a certain amount of anxiety. There was also this this lifting, this weight off my shoulders. That yeah, definitely, I relate to that. Definitely, yeah. sort of that, like I say, the underlying level of stress, which everyone is subject to, even second line role. You know, you're, yeah. like so. Big, I'm I'm sure it's the same for every military unit. You've got your you've got your immediate program, your flight your flying program the next day or for the the, the week coming. You've got your short cast, which is what the squadron or the unit is doing over the next four weeks or whatever it might be. Mid cast, long cast, everything's planned out for you. Um, but by the same token, yes, it's all planned out, but you still got to make sure that you're ticking all those boxes, making sure that you're current and correct and and you know in date for medicals, this, that, the other. You know, and you've got that stress all the time of knowing that you've you've kind of got to perform and that's just the basic kind of administrative level you've also got the stress of of knowing that you're in the armed forces and you could could be called upon at any time to yeah. go and you know deploy or whatever it might be and then furthermore you're in an aviation environment which is inherently you know not inherently dangerous there are dangers associated with it yeah you know? um so yeah leaving the armed forces you lost and you lost a lot of that stress you know it, it it's it's gone and i think for me, the really important thing now is that I don't allow myself to build up stressful circumstances. Yeah, that's great. Uh, you know, and I, you know, I that can happen. It can quite easily happen where something doesn't go quite as you'd like it to with a client or a particular task that you've, you've got to do, or something is not going well with an employee. And I would be the sort of I'm normally the sort of person that will really sort of take that to heart and really let it sort of eat away at me and and i generate stress and sometimes i just have to take a step backwards and think hang on why what why yeah. be stressed these these are actually and it sounds very selfish but sometimes you have to be the, like this as a bit of a defense mechanism sometimes you do have to look at things and go actually this is someone else's problem i'm I'm, I'm, it's my responsible to sort it out, not my responsibility to try and help and assist and, and sort it out. And I, I'll do as, as well as I can. But ultimately, it's somebody else's problem. I, I can go home at night and, and you know, compartmentalize, I suppose, and, and, and put that away. So that's quite a nice luxury. When you're in the armed forces, you can't do that. You know, no, you're, you, are, you're, you are in the service and, and, yeah. and, and you have a duty to perform. And you're responsible uh, for people. You fly with them. You know, I, I trust any of the guys, you know, 110% of the guys. I, one of the guys even flew my wife, you know. So, 
Uh, it wouldn't have mattered which guy that was, and I genuinely mean that. I couldn't have cared which guy flew my wife. I trained most of them anyway. Um, they wouldn't have been on the squad unless I trusted them. But it's yeah. interesting you talk about this um, this thing where you say, well, that's that's their problem. It's not my problem. I'm, I'm trying to do a lot more now. And you see, we're in this outrage culture at the moment where people, you know, they have to, it's not good enough for them to kind of go, oh, I'm a bit offended by what that says in the paper. No, they've got to be outraged by it. It's like, and everyone has to know how outraged, it's not enough to just kind of yeah. go, oh yeah, I'm a bit upset. I'll go and deal with that myself. It's like, yeah. no, 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 this is unfair. And I have to write an editorial and I have to put it on. And we see that a lot. Uh, well, it's, a, it's probably a Trump thing as well, isn't it? And Brexit is showing the worst of the country now, as of course it is. Yeah. And no one's standing behind the PM who picked up that thing from Cameron. And sometimes on Facebook, I'd get myself, I used to get myself into a huge argument over Brexit, whatever. And now I'm like, you know what? If you feel that way about it, and you want to espouse that kind of opinion, well, that's great. And I wish yeah. you the best, but I'm not even going to bother because I know where it puts me in a, you yeah. know, a mental state. I feel angry inside and that anger becomes toxic and then we get ill. Yeah. Um, it's actually something that Alfred Adler, who's a psychologist, used to work with Sigmund Freud. Uh, he called task separation. I'm pretty sure it's him. It might, it's him or young or someone, but uh, he would say, uh, these are tasks of other people that you need to separate yourself from. Yeah. So it might be that um, you can see someone having an issue, but until they ask for your help, don't wade in there. You know, your, your brother's doing something or your sister's doing something, whatever, you don't approve of. Don't reach in there and tell them how to do it. If they want help from you, they'll come and, they'll come and ask you. And then you can decide yeah. whether your help is the best for them or not, because it might not be. And you might say, look, I don't want to get involved here because, you know, um, this, you know, and also if you do help them all the time, then they never learn how to help themselves. No. And, and that's, you're actually doing themselves a disservice there. You're actually hurting them more than you would be if you just let them alone, let them work it out. And then next time they know how to cope with it. Yeah. So it's only really after leaving the service that I'm understanding what that task separation is and actually how to do that in a responsible way so that it doesn't affect me so that when I wake up in the morning, I don't feel angry and stuff, you know? Yeah. And I think in, in the military, you're right that you can't do that because the, the mission goal, you're, you're responsible for that. You have a part in that. And like on deployment, whatever it might be. I mean, you, when you're on a ship, you were, you'd have been the, uh, probably one of the only pilots on that ship. I would have thought maybe there were two pilots and an observer or something. But, you know, you, you've got to be involved in that. You yeah. don't have a choice to be involved in that. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And you're absolutely right. You know, uh, Lynx pilot on uh, Type 23, you know, Type 42, as was for me, uh, and so on. Yeah, you're the, the only pilot, you know. Yeah. Uh, aviation aviation did not happen yeah. unless you got in the aircraft, you know. Uh, yeah. And the whole ship is geared up towards it as well. It's not just, the, you know, the aircraft doesn't just, you know, nip off the back end without anyone noticing. The whole the whole ship is involved in 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 aviation to launch and recover the aircraft and everything else so yeah no you you, you can't get away from it you can't just say do you know what flying tomorrow someone else's problem it's you interesting, know yeah i, I uh, wonder whether because we're, we're not deep, we're not deep diving into this and we obviously could but we've, we've gone an hour and stuff i don't want to hold you forever but it's interesting with the navy and the air force and how the differences that i i only went through flying training in the navy i never did the the extra career that you did but um because you work obviously I did sea time i did fleet time and i did initial sea training but when you work on a ship this is a ship's company, isn't it? I think they're yeah. on a 23. I'm going to throw figures out there because my time was on a Type 22 um, boxer in London. But there were, I think, 22 officers in the wardroom and about 200 ships company. Yeah. Uh, all men at the time. There were no women on the ship. I think HMS Sheffield was the first ship to get women in about the same time we were at sea with her. So, um, that, but it's a ship's company that worked together. And when you're, when you're firefighting and you do all the battle damage stuff that we did, I can't remember the terminologies. I do apologize a long time ago for me. But you're all in fear not suits, aren't you? And you don't know who's who and you could have the captain stood next to you and you could have, you know. It, yeah. I remember it being a whole ship's company that put that ship to sea. In the Air Force, there is that divide. And I hate to say it because I, I still work with a lot of engineers from the Air Force today and I still know a lot of engineers. But there was that there was the officers that get in the airplane and there was the engineers that serve as the airplane. And some days you never saw each other. 
you know and yeah. I, I don't want to deep dive into this but it just makes me yeah. realize i wonder whether that somehow works into the way you address people today and maybe a way i address people it's something for later i guess i, I don't know but interesting point yeah, yeah it's, it's one of those things we think about it. right so what have we not covered on this thing i don't want to keep you forever so okay. we did i'm just going through my list of things now you might have stuff on your one as well um oh this is going to cover the future real quickly and then we'll just do that 10 yeah. minutes and go because obviously my future is happening i'm not too sure what's going to be what happens with proud house now or what happens with you you've got a family i don't have a wife but i don't have a family like yours i guess you're more prioritized into them now than you ever were before but yeah. what happens with what are you doing with um the future you're going to carry on in the r&r for a bit yeah, so I definitely see my career in the R&R. And I always tell people, by the way, in, in, in the R&R, I always say I see it as my second Navy career. You know, I, I do. It's not just about turning up and seeing my old mates. I do. There's progression, uh, training, developing uh, all the time as a, as a reservist officer uh, and also learning more and more every time I attend about the um, about the Wildcat aircraft, which is completely, um, although it kind of looks a little bit like a Lynx in terms of the uh, the, the kit and the equipment it's is a completely different beast so i'm really having to sort of put the time into learning that so the r&r is definitely uh you know, features in my career i suppose for for the next few years to come hopefully as long as they still want me there's no um you know there's no guarantees there um but as it stands at the moment that's all that's all good in terms of my business we were talking about scaling up and so on i'm the sort of person that likes develop uh, develop developing and evolving so in terms of my business it's very much a plan not necessarily to open a multi um office agency but certainly to build and develop the services uh, that we offer. Um, so we're looking at moving into maintenance. Um, so not just managing maintenance for rental properties, but also managing maintenance for um, anyone that perhaps doesn't want to necessarily deal with a, a, a tradesman. They might want to deal with a, an, an agent or a manager that can oversee, um, you know, and understand, you know, maintenance, perhaps on larger properties uh, and perhaps, you know, builds and, and refurbishments and so on. Um, and that to do that, we requires me evolving and developing the, the database and the systems that we've got, uh, needing more staff and, and so on. So that's the way I see the business going is, is, is definitely growing and developing. For me to create freedom, you mentioned earlier about, you know, for the work that some of the work that you're doing at the moment, it, it's all about you, you know, it, it's, it's, it's you standing up and, and giving a talk or you being the consultant and so on. For me to get to a situation where perhaps the, my business is is standing up truly in its own right, I need to I think evolve more, uh, employ more people, develop and train more, and get to a stage where I can stand back and really properly manage the business without getting too involved in the in the day to day aspects. And I'm probably just transitioning into that phase at the moment. I'd like to think that in 2019 next year. I'm going to be not doing the day-to-day -day stuff. I'm going to be training, managing, and developing my staff and, and the systems and, and the business plan. So that's on that side of things. But then the other thing as well is, you know, family is really important. I've got, you know, my wife, uh, daughter, stepdaughter. Uh, we're in our new house that we moved to a couple of years ago. And, you know, there's that whole side of my life as as well. And, uh, you know, I part of running your own business one of the reasons why people want to do it is to give themselves the freedom to spend more time with family or perhaps the flexibility to do things with 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 the family that you might not have the opportunity if you were an employee so it's very important to me that i start factoring in 
that's you know the, the time to do those sorts of things instead of just being very entrepreneurial all the time and filling my time up my diary up with appointments and this that and the other I actually got to take time out and just remember there's a there's a life out there you know stop stop and enjoy it you know because it's it's it will pass by in no time at all it does and the thing is i, I don't work five days a week now well i kind of have to now in a way because i've got another thing but i try and have a four day really big four day working week where i literally deploy from the house sometimes i live in a hotel hit it hard and come back and take a three-day weekend and there's a lot of reading i've been doing online about um businesses that do that they do a four-day working week and they they're so much more efficient than doing five days and and a lot of it is because these meetings everything we go to and you get dragged in and it's like stop that so i'm really trying to be more one of the one of the pieces of advice i give to someone leaving the military is just take some time don't bounce military into commercial prime or whatever it might be big company just take some time out and do something with it try and plan it if you can but even if you can't plan it it means you're drifting around the house just fixing the house up just take some time until you get a bit bored you know reach out try and find some jobs have a few interviews but don't rush um and just try and because the military i think is this big thing you leave and then you're like wow actually that was that was quite full-on yeah it's kind of almost i'm not saying damaging in a way but it is it is when you when you when you come out you're like i'm quite a big fan of trying to help people rejoin if it's the right place for them but no one I speak to rejoins if they've been out for like, I don't think, less than a couple of years. They, they really have to take some time to just decompress from yeah. the whole military experience. And when the younger generation, like, I really want to get in and fly airplanes, I'm like, that's a small part of your life inside the military. <laughs> you know, yeah. there was a guy, Carl, on here recently. Um, he's just joined the Navy, in fact. He's about to go down Dartmouth. A lovely guy, got in as observer. Real level-headed guy. And if you go back um, two podcasts ago, I think, or maybe three, you'll find Carl. Uh, really good to see young people joining up to the services that are that that thought it through that much and understand the implications of what they're doing. I get a lot of emails from guys that, uh, and girls that have not done that. And so I always try and say, you know, listen to these podcasts, read what I've written and speak to people like yourself and really try and find out what, what actually going into the services means because coming out, you have a full understanding of what it meant. Um, and it's, it's not as, what's the word I'm trying to, it's what we were talking about earlier about conformity and repression. It's not as uh, open as a career as you think. It takes a lot of devotion, a lot of time, um, yeah. A lot of kind of mental and physiological strength, I suppose, in a way. And then when you come out, you, you think, well, I'm, I've kind of done that now. Maybe I'm, I need a bit of time to decompress and do something else. Um, I appreciate your time because you are busy. And we didn't really go into anything else here. And also, I have to say to people that you're my best man at my wedding. So it's like <laughs> there is that kind of, you know what I mean? It's like I do know you a little bit, you know what I mean? There are some <laughs> things that I would love to talk to you about and we will have to talk about them in the future. But what I wanted to get out from you really was that entrepreneurial side of leaving the service, which is not really done by many people. Um, what that means, what the problems it, uh, that we have in there, of course, looking at your past journey and everything and understanding the fact that whatever we do within the military it's all wrapped up in failing recovery that first attempt in learning and yeah. we we use that as we leave we use it as we go into our professional lives outside the military and i look now outside the military and i'm like military is what i did you know i did that for 20 years yeah i wrote some stuff about it yeah i'm really i'm forward facing on this now i'm, I'm not looking behind me and trying to live off my past and it's weird because fast shit performance of course that's how i'm known as but it's about performance of you know the things we need in order to go into flying these airplanes that's what i'm talking about and what does that now mean in my transition out and my my kind of future in civilian life And i'm really focused in looking out and um, looking for opportunities where i can add some kind of value i think if you're always doing that as you are doing to the people down there somerset with what you're doing with proud house and stuff then you're never really going to go wrong no yeah absolutely appreciate your time hour 15 that's not bad hour hour 15 (laughs) of quality (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> been on the phone for a lot longer in the past <laughs> yeah exactly and that's the thing we could just go on forever and i'll leave this bit in because obviously i'm gonna have to go in a minute whilst they've been on this people have been calling me on the phone here because um it's not live or anything it's just uh 
when you work so many jobs, you get a lot of these, um, a lot of people calling. Of course, I work a, a day from home now. I think that's quite important to, I get yeah. a lot more done from home, as you can imagine. But I'm at home now, sat yeah. in my kitchen doing this. And the other thing as well, the weekend, I just bought a book called um, How to Be How to Be Bored, I think it's called. Nice. It's about, I mean, I'll, I'll send you the, the, the proper Link title. And oh, I literally only first read the first chapter so far. I only got it yesterday afternoon. But it is all about detaching yourself away from the phone and the distractions and WhatsApp and text messages, all these things that have an influence on your life. Yeah. And spreading yourself so thin, you end up doing, having, you know, really building up your capacity such that you can do so much stuff. But by about two or three o'clock in the afternoon, your brain's aching. You've got no capacity left for doing anything because you've not concentrated on just doing two or three or four quality tasks yeah. throughout the day. And I really recognize that. And that's, you know, that's where I'm at, at the moment, really, I suppose, as a business owner, is, is is detaching myself away from all the distractions. I can do a bit of quality work. But anyway, yes, no, you're absolutely right. Phones, contact. Well, there's a thing <laughs> I, I read recently about, um, I read an article on self-sabotage. I've written one before, and it was a very similar thing to what I've written. Mine was more military-focused, of course, was why students fail. But this was talking about we spread ourselves so thinly so that we don't have to achieve. We're not responsible anymore of achieving in those individual roles because yeah. we're only doing them for a little bit, right? So we can go, well, I'm only doing this for a little bit so I don't have to commit too much to it. And what we're really saying to ourselves is, therefore, if I fail at that, it's not really my responsibility because I wasn't doing it full time. So, yeah. you know, I, I was all right to fail. And I'm, I'm cautious, uh, and, well, conscious maybe the better word, of thin, spreading myself too thinly. Um, yeah. And also, I, I was reading something else about saying, someone was saying, you can really only do three 90 minutes of chunks of work in a day. And if you think about it, that's what, four and a half hours. Um, then there's three and a half hours of emails, meetings, everything else. If you, yeah. can, if you can put yourself down and say, right, shut your door, whatever it is you do, and go, I'm going to do this for 90 minutes, and I'm going to do three of these 90 minutes in one day, your productivity goes through the roof. Yeah. Because yeah, you absolutely. plan it. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. I don't get me I think testament to that as well is I take my I, when I go on holiday each year I have to take my laptop and my phone and a bit of work stuff with yeah. me. I simply can't go away for for two weeks and just not be uh, contactable at all. But after two or three days, the telephone stops ringing and the messages stop coming my way and the emails slow down because I have taken myself out of mm. that sort of almost self perpetuating process of generating messages and emails and and, and communications and so on. And all I've done, because I've been on holiday, is the essential stuff that needed doing. Yeah. And lo and behold, actually, the world doesn't fall apart, you know. <laughs> it does. A lot of emails we get as well aren't, it's email, not immediate mail, isn't it? But they're not important. People are just trying to get some kind of warm stroke or something to say that what they're doing is okay. And I always yeah. say to people, when they say, hey, I sent you emails, you never answered. I said, if only I had a phone number, you know what I mean, that you could have called. <laughs> That's at the bottom of the email trail. If only you could have used that number, like if there was a magic number you could get me on. Interesting though, because personal taste, I much prefer a short email because people spend so much time on the phone. Yeah, you know, I, mean, I normally I just want if you someone was going to call me, I want a quick message. Chris, can you do this? Or Chris, can you advise on such and such? Yeah, no worries. Two minutes. But instead, you know, it's very nice. Clearly, I'm not, I'm not, not being unfriendly. I'm just stating facts, really. That telephone calls can take ten or fifteen minutes, when actually an email would be two or three lines to achieve the same thing. 
but it all all depends on your your style, I suppose, isn't well, it? Yeah, I mean, it's, I talk about if you're if you're in an email thing and you're getting three or four emails from the same guy and you're not getting any response from you, it's like there's a reason for that. It's because I'm on the road or something, and just call me. You know, I spend a lot of time on the road, and it's a bit unfortunate because there's nothing else you can do on the road apart from drive and listen to podcasts yeah. or whatever. That's you know, but you can't create at all. Uh, and obviously, I do a lot of creating things and writing and stuff like that. I'm stuck in this vehicle. And I kind you, of, don't have you don't have a chauffeur? You know, I, I, I was going to get one. I was going to get an au pair as well, but apparently you've got to have kids. So I'm, I'm not allowed to do that either. <laughs> <laughs> Rubbish life, yeah. So, But you're right, I need a chauffeur. So if I, if I can work out a way of getting a cheap chauffeur, and I would honestly pay someone, I don't know what, how much you'd have to do it, but if they drove me for like three and a half hours somewhere and then dropped me off, and it's obviously like a taxi or whatever, I wonder how much I'd pay someone to get that time where I could be in the back of the car doing what I needed to do. Like, yeah. you, know, you know when you get a train and you're like all of a sudden on the train you've got nothing else to do on a train nothing apart from hit your emails get your admin sorted There's, yeah. you know, I see people watching films on a train and stuff and I'm like I'd love to have that life where I, I could sit there and just you know what I mean but I don't I've just got to that's my admin time I've got to get that admin done then again of course we have to make time for, for chilling as well just maybe on a train is that's a really great opportunity and when you're in a car all I'm thinking of is I'm literally just driving there's nothing else I can yeah. do I'll work yeah. that out, but I'm just going to try and cost it up. A business idea, couldn't it? Like cheap yeah. chauffeuring or something. Yeah, like yeah. The, the, the hey. NetJets. Yeah, perhaps there's an idea there, yeah. The NetJets yeah. of cars type thing. Well, it's fractional ownership, isn't it? For you know, Because if you're going one way, if you're taking someone, say, to London, well, if there's someone else needs to get picked up in London later in the day to come back out to somewhere else, you just work out your network and yeah. some, I guess it is a chauffeur service we are describing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we'd be rubbish at like Dragon's Den, wouldn't we? <laughs> yeah, so what you're trying to sell me, Sim, here is um, a chauffeuring company. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, that's rubbish. I think I should stick to the jobs I'm doing at the moment. Look, I really appreciate it. I'm going to chuck this out at some point, okay? But um, if people want to find you, Chris Chambers, Proud House Property. Yeah, so um, Somerset, anyone can contact me, Chris, at proudhouseproperty.co.uk. Um, if anyone in the armed forces wants to talk to me about setting up a business uh, or just general advice about transitioning from uh, life in the armed forces to Sibley Street, I'd be delighted to, uh, to to help them. And, and clearly, a quick plug for my business, we deal with you know property management and lettings of uh, private residential um, properties. So if you've got a rental property... Uh, an HMO, a house in multiple occupation, or anything along those sorts of lines in the southwest, South Somerset, Dorset, uh, uh, Taunton, Bristol, Bath, you know, those sorts of areas, then give me a shout because I can help. And I promise you, we'll be a lot better than your average high street agent. Yeah, well, that's what your customers say, isn't it? Which I'm just, I'm surprised at how poor the service is. You know, and this is obviously why you're doing so well because, yeah, yeah it's incredible. Well, apart from the brilliance, I mean, it's the, the lack of brilliance. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, one of my top tips for going into business is, is pick an industry that's got a lousy reputation and get into it. That's great. Uh, actually, you stand a good chance of standing out. That's a great tip for people, isn't it? I love that. That is brilliant. <laughs> All right, look, well, I'll catch you soon. I'll give you a call during the week or something, okay? Nice one. Cheers, Tim. Bud family. Talk soon. Yeah, bye.